So today's uh, message is entitled, The Gentle Producer of Justice, and the theme is, You Have Been Chosen. And uh, last week, uh, we concluded our year-long study of the book of Acts. Uh, We learned many important things, uh, many important truths about the way of Jesus, the church of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the plan of God, the gospel of Jesus. And providentially, we find ourselves only a few weeks away from Resurrection Sunday. Uh, In fact, this past week was the beginning of what uh, is called the season of Lent, a traditional church observant of the 40-day period leading up to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I mentioned the term Lent, and I know some of you might get a twitch or a spasm or uh, have bad memories come to mind or whatever. I, I understand that, and I'm not bringing it to your attention for the purpose of making you miserable or even in encouraging us of having a time of fasting or works or things like that. I am bringing it to our attention for the purpose of having us as a church enter into the next 40 days, focusing our attention on the Savior of our souls, Jesus. For centuries, the church, globally speaking, has traditionally uh, turned its attention in some way, shape, or form during these 40 days to God's salvation found in Jesus. And that's all I'm intending for us to do. I'm not going to have us fast or give up anything out of the ordinary unless you give up not coming to church. Um, you can give that up. That's fine. Come to church. That'd be a great thing to do. Um, uh, not coming to church is always a good thing to give up. But if God lays something on your heart uh, for you to give up, then go ahead and obey him. But we are simply going to focus our attention on Jesus as the suffering servant over the next uh, 40 days. And that's the title of our ser- uh, sermon series uh, for these next a couple of weeks uh, up until Resurrection Sunday, The Suffering Servant of the Lord. Uh, for the most part, we'll be looking at ancient poems from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which I'll explain a little bit in a moment. The, series, uh, the sermon titles will be as follows. So today, The Suffering Servant is portrayed as the gentle producer of justice. And then next week, Dave Field will be coming to speak, and he'll be talking about the suffering servant as the chosen light to the nations. And then later, we'll see that the servant is the humble washer of feet, the rejected teacher of truth, the despised bearer of sin, the crushed offering for guilt. And on Good Friday, we'll see that the suffering servant was the pierced king of the Jews. And then Resurrection Sunday, we're going to celebrate that the suffering servant is the risen Savior of mankind. So that's where we're going to head over the next couple of weeks. And what we will see is that the plan of God stems back to before time began, and it all culminates in this suffering servant, the one who was sent to redeem mankind. And, And God hinted at him in the Garden of Eden, He unveiled more about this servant at Mount Sinai, and then he spoke through the prophets about him, and then he revealed him fully on Mount Calvary, and he displayed him victoriously as he walked out of the grave on Easter morning. And so this should be a fun series. Um, It's a little different. It's not narrative. It's poems. So uh, some of you might check out, but hopefully that you won't meditate with your eyes closed. Hopefully you'll keep your eyes open and pay attention. But as I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be reading some of the chapters from the prophet Isaiah. Now, when you hear the word prophet, um, we all have different pictures come to mind. Uh, We probably think of an older man with long gray hair, a long gray cloak, wearing sandals, carrying a staff in his hand, or maybe that's a description of Gandalf, I don't know. Um, 
my bad. But, but really, we think of prophets as these holier-than-thou men who predict the future. But a prophet in the Old Testament was simply an official spokesman of God. He was an individual whom God called and who, to whom God spoke. And that man, in turn, would speak to the people what God told him to say. And the name Isaiah means salvation, the salvation of Yahweh. So the, the name Isaiah, Isaiah means the salvation of Yahweh, which is a fitting name for that is what the theme of the entire book of Isaiah is about, the salvation of Yahweh. And it's no wonder that Isaiah looks ahead to the suffering servant, Jesus, so much in his prophecy. In fact, no other prophecies are quoted more in the New Testament than the prophecies from Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is divided up into two sections. The first section runs from Isaiah chapter 1 to chapter 39 and deals primarily with the judgment of God upon Israel for their rejection of him. They're turning from him to idols and their propensity to do things all on their own and leave God out of the picture. And so God spoke through Isaiah about their impending doom because of what they did, which would come in the form of Babylon. Babylon, the Babylonian armor would come and destroy Jerusalem and their nation, and Israel would be taken into captivity. And at the time of the writing of the first part of Isaiah, all of this was still in the future, both for Isaiah and for Israel. And then comes the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. And what's so amazing about the second half of Isaiah is that the Isaiah's prophecy looks through that, that gloom and doom of the hostile takeover of Israel uh, and through the deportation to Babylon, through 70 years of captivity, through the return of the people back to the, to the nation of Israel and on into God's redemption through Jesus and the eternal glory that awaits all of those who put their faith in God's way of salvation. And it's quite fascinating. All of that is packed into the second half of the book of Isaiah. And I love how God begins the second half of Isaiah. From nothing but judgment and gloom and despair and all of this bad is going to happen, God begins with these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people. And that, those words, they set the tone for the remainder of the book of Isaiah. God comforting his people by promising to deliver them through the redemption of a suffering servant. And God's plan culminates in a glorious kingdom described in chapters 65 and 66. And Isaiah 40 to 66 are the gospel message proclaimed in the Old Testament. It's so fascinating. We're not going to look at all that, but I wanted to give you that background. So we're going to take the next few weeks to look at four incredible poems written by Isaiah under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these four poems, which are located in the second half of Isaiah, are affectionately called the, suffering, the Songs of the Suffering Servant. All right? So each poem or song is about a servant who suffers for the sake of others. A servant who ministers to the nations, teaches truth, bears the sins of others, and is crushed to provide an offering for guilt. And this servant is rejected and despised and oppressed and killed. But it's predicted in the final servant song that the servant would rise from the dead. Isaiah the poet doesn't name the servant, but he describes Jesus Christ with incredible accuracy and detail 700 years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. And as we look at these poems, we will learn about the character of God, the, the way of Jesus, which is the way that we follow. For the way of Jesus, the path that he calls us to follow him on, is an ancient path. It's nothing new. As we follow Jesus down the path of suffering 
service to God, we join millions who traveled that road over the millennia before us. It is the timeless way of Yahweh, it is the God of our salvation. So with that introduction, turn back to Isaiah chapter 42. Now at this church, we aspire to be people of the word, so I encourage you to bring your Bibles on Sundays. Uh, if you don't have one, then take one out in the foyer between the two doors right around the corner. There's a table. There are free Bibles considered our gift to you because um, we're going to be, and then put your bookmark in Isaiah for the next few weeks. But Isaiah, if you don't know where it is in my Bible, some Bibles, you can go right to the smack dab center. Well, didn't quite work that time. But you might, you will probably end up in Isaiah if you go to smack dab center. Or if your Bible happens to open to Psalms, you just turn to the right a little bit uh, and uh, pass Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and you will be in Isaiah. So turn to Isaiah chapter 42, put a bookmark there. We'll be there for the next few weeks. So we're going to begin with a description of this suffering servant of the Lord, verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And he will not grow weary or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So, this short description of the servant, he is number one, he's God's servant. The servant is chosen by God himself. It's not a democratic vote. There's no question as to how this servant got his position. This servant was chosen by God himself for a specific purpose, and that purpose being to accomplish the purposes and plans of God for every human on the planet. Number two, the servant is upheld by God. The servant does not fulfill his role in his own power or, or by his own will or wisdom. The servant is upheld or sustained in his role and in his work by the power of Almighty God. The servant, it says, is the object of God's delight. This means that the servant is pleasing to God. God's affection rests upon the servant. God takes deep pleasure in the servant and enjoys his company. The Spirit of God himself is upon the servant. It says that uh, I put my spirit upon him. God purposely and specifically placed his own spirit upon the servant. And this means that the servant holds the character and the quality and the morals and the ethics and the power and the authority and the purposes of God. He represents God and he initiates the purposes and plans of God. And so this servant of the Lord is chosen by God, upheld by God, object of God's affection and delight, and God's spirit rests upon him. And those are some pretty incredible credentials. But what is the task which the servant is called to? Let's continue. So it says three times in, our, in the first four verses that he produces or brings forth justice. Three times. Remember, I've told this before. If something is mentioned three times, we need to pay attention to that, right, in Scripture? So he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, what is justice? Right? Well, the Hebrew word is mispat, and it means to decide a case, to sentence, to execute judgment, to make right. The big idea of the word is basically to establish law and order in society. We all want that, right? We want justice. We want law and order. The servant is going to bring forth justice to the nations, it says. And that's a big task. It's an impossible task. It's an audacious task, right? 
Who can bring justice to every nation on the planet? It's, it's kind of ludicrous. Uh, but, if so, but even if so, how? How would someone do that? See, justice is good, but how justice is produced is just as important that justice is produced. Think through history of mankind with me a little bit. Even church history, right? All, all those who sought to brought justice to the nations or to a group of nations, and think of like the Crusades, think of the World Wars, think of those. When humans bring justice, it's typically brought through force or through conflict, right? So the question here is, well, how is this servant going to bring justice to the entire planet, to every nation on the planet? How will the servant of the Lord bring justice to the nations? Through force and conflict? And the answer is that he will do it quietly and gently and faithfully. He will bring forth justice quietly. And this is in contrast to those who bring forth justice forcefully or through conquest, right? So when you walk through a city or through a market, they can be very noisy, right? Cities are noisy places. People are talking, and back in ancient times, there were animals braying, street vendors are calling out to get your attention, pots are, are banging, the wind is howling, feet are stomping, there's utensils clanging all over the place. There's much to distract us, right? Much to muffle out what's important. And the forceful and the strong people, they push their way through the crowds. They're all about everyone noticing them and hearing them. The strong make noise. They make waves. In ancient times, important people who brought forth justice had and had important cases to decide, they would stand in the city gates. And the court cases were heard in the open air where everyone could hear and attend. And oftentimes the judge would stand out on an elevated platform and in the gates and he would yell or shout or raise his voice so that he could be heard. And their law and order, their justice was accomplished through volume. But this is not the way of the servant of the Lord. He doesn't use the conventional ways of bringing law and order. He doesn't use the worldly means of declaring justice. It says he will not cry aloud. Can, and it can also be said he will not shriek. Okay? So in other words, he will not startle people to gain his atten- to gain their attention. He, he won't put his finger to his mouth right, and give that, that ear-splitting whistle to get everyone to look his way. He will not give a loud whoop so that everyone kind of turns their attention. It also says he will not lift up his voice. And the word means to lift up or to carry. In other words, he will not use amplification to carry his voice further. He will not yell or shout or use a microphone or a speaker sound system to make himself heard. And it also says he will make his judgment and his voice heard in the street. He will not make it. So he will not make it known in the streets. In other words, he will not publicize, he will not advertise his voice in the streets. He won't put up street signs and bulletin boards and scrolling neon lights to bring attention to himself. It's not the way of Yahweh. And it is not the way of the servant of the Lord. The Lord Yahweh works very differently than we people work, we humans. He works quietly, gently, and faithfully in obscurity and silence. But God did not, remember, God did not reveal himself to Elijah in the whirlwind. Remember? It was in the still, small voice. The servant brings forth justice quietly. And then he brings forth justice gently. And this is directed towards those who are broken and needy. And this is a poem, so remember these are metaphors in here, and the items talked about are objects used to describe certain types of people. 
So it says that his justice will not break a bruised or crushed reed. In other words, the servant will not break those who are already half-broken, those who are crushed and bruised and injured by life. He will not kick those who are already down. He will not take advantage of those who are weak. In fact, the poet suggests the opposite. The servant is able to mend and to heal those broken people. And his justice, it says, will not extinguish a smoldering wick. Think of a candle with a wick that's just kind of barely, barely, uh, barely alive there. In other words, a servant will not quench those who are faint and weak. He will not put out their fire. He will not extinguish those who are oppressed and taken advantage of. The poet suggests the opposite, that the servant is actually able to strengthen the weak and the faint of heart. The servant brings forth justice quietly and gently and also faithfully. So this servant is in the mix along with this noise and loud and boisterous. He's also with the, the broken and the weak, the faint and the abused, the disadvantaged and the needy. And this word faithfully carries with it the meaning that he is undaunted, he's undeterred, he's undiminished, undiscouraged, undefeated. It also carries the meaning of truth. He will truthfully bring forth justice in this context, right? In other words, a servant is trustworthy, true, and faithful. And so this trustworthy, faithful, true servant will produce justice, justice being what is right, what is proper, what is moral, what is lawful, what produces law and order in society. And you look further at the faithfulness and trustworthiness of this servant of the Lord. It says that he will not, he will not grow faint or dull or dim like a faintly burning wick. So there's that, that fire, that wick, right? The servant has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Yahweh's authority resides on him, making him a strong flame that will not be quenched. He will not be discouraged like the bruised or broken reed. The servant is secure in the relationship of Yahweh. He knows that he is chosen and upheld. Therefore, he has nothing to fear and nothing to deter him, nothing to oppress him. He will not be discouraged until, it says, he establishes justice in the earth. Now, the servant will not produce justice in one place, in one nation, in one town, or among one people group. The servant's justice will be all-encompassing. It will include all peoples of the earth. As I mentioned before, this is an audacious task. People have tried it, never been successful. But this servant will bring law and order to every nation on the planet. And we read this and we're like, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that, the servant will bring forth justice, quietly, gently, faithfully. But stop and consider, does anyone bring justice that way? No one brings law and order through weakness and gentleness. Think of just, you know, law and order as we think of it. It's through force, right? This is completely opposite of what we see. And the language here is almost like the servant is a victim, not a conqueror. How could anyone bring law and order as a victim instead of a conqueror? It's not logical. Unless there's something supernatural about him. Unless our view of justice and how, it is accomplished, how it's accomplished is tainted and warped, which it is, by sin. But I want us to look further. The poet ends with the first stanza with the phrase, the coastlands or the islands wait for his law. So they will wait or hope for his law, it says. And the Hebrew word for law is Torah. Torah is basically God's decrees or God's instructions. And so this could be said, the ends of the earth will hope for God's Torah. 
The far reaches of the earth will hope for Yahweh's law and order. Why? Why would they wait for God's law and order? Because his law and order is not accomplished through conquering them, but through loving them. Such a drastic change. Now, in case you were wondering if this is talking about Jesus or not, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you're falling asleep, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 verse 9. Now, in this passage, the, the author Matthew describes for us a real-life parable that illustrates that Jesus is the suffering servant. And there are many such passages, but I'm just choosing this one today. Matthew 12 recounts the story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. The man could be described, as we heard in, in the poem, as, as bruised and partially broken, crushed, withered, right? So remember, Jesus came to earth to establish justice and righteousness, to bring God's law and order to mankind, the law and order being the kingdom of God, okay? The, his law and order is found within his kingdom. Well, Jesus came to this crushed and broken reed of a man, and he did not break him further. He did not kick him while he was down. He healed him, and he mended him. Jesus brought wholeness to this man's life. Uh, but alas, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day right in front of the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, and they were angry at him and wanted to destroy him. And they wanted to kill Jesus for doing a good deed on the Sabbath day. So what did Jesus do? Did Jesus bring justice the way the world does, right? Did Jesus stand in the city gate, raise his voice at these Pharisees, and, 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 and let them have it? No, Jesus did not raise his voice. He did not cry aloud. He did not make his justice heard in the streets. Instead, he, as we will see, let's turn there. Verse uh, 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And now Jesus could have produced justice right here, right? They were wrong. He was right. Look at what he does. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. But this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Listen. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will produce justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's the same passage we just read. All right? So instead, Jesus withdraws from the place and he went somewhere else where he could heal the broken and give strength to the weak. And he did this, as Matthew records, in fulfillment of this prophecy that we just read in Isaiah. Now, why does Matthew put that in there? Why do you think Matthew puts that in there? He's making the point that Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is the chosen servant of God. Jesus is the one beloved by God. Jesus is the one who's the object of God's delight. Jesus is the one upon whom God's Spirit rests. And look at how Jesus accomplished the task of bringing justice. He ordered people not to make him known. So Matthew's making a connection for us. Jesus is the gentle producer of justice, quietly, calmly, persistently, but powerfully bringing healing and wholeness and justice to individuals who place their faith in him. And by doing this, Jesus was planting seeds. Seeds of the kingdom planted into the hearts and lives of those whom he healed and touched. He did not shriek 
He did not cry out. He did not amplify his voice. He did not force people to listen to him. He did not advertise what he was doing. He simply placed his law in order inside their hearts as they believed in him according to the loving and gracious character of Yahweh. He quietly did this work. And the seeds of the kingdom in individual hearts and lives grew to affect more and more and more people which populated that kingdom of God. And now remember, Isaiah said that the coastlands or the islands will wait or hope in God's Torah. Well, here Matthew changes the quote slightly. Isaiah said that the Gentiles would hope in God's Torah. Matthew says that the Gentiles will put hope in his name. So you put those two phrases together. The Torah is God's word, his written law and order, so to speak. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah. He is the word who was with God and is God. And Jesus and the, well, as the fulfillment of God's Torah is therefore the producer of justice, the law and order. And it is in his name that the ends of the earth can hope. Hope of justice and righteousness and peace and healing are found in the servant of the Lord. His name is Jesus. Now you may be wondering, is this justice that Jesus produced a thing of the past? So in other words, did, he stop doing, did, did his justice stop when he was done on planet earth? Or is it something in the present? Is he establishing justice now in our lives? Or is it in the future? Will he bring justice to full completion someday in the end of time? And the answer to all those questions is yes, he will. In the past, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, opened the way for God to justly punish sin while at the same time graciously provide salvation. In the present, this means that all who place their faith in Jesus receive God's justice, his law and order inside of their hearts as, as he places his Holy Spirit inside of us. And in the future, this will all culminate when we get to heaven and all the wrongs are finally made right. Evil is punished fully and righteousness is rewarded by the gentle producer of justice, Jesus, the one who opened the way through his suffering service to God. And I hope all that makes sense. But Isaiah didn't stop the prophecy there. He continued with a promise to the servant. So the second half of that prophecy, back in Isaiah 42, verse 5, He continues, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So this is a promise to the servant. And there are three sections in this final portion of the poem that we're looking at this morning. And each section begins with a reference to the Lord. Now in your Bibles, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's the translators telling you that this is the uh, covenant name of God, Yahweh. And you will see in verse 5, thus says the Lord Yahweh. In verse uh, 6, I am the Lord Yahweh. And in verse 8, I am the Lord Yahweh. So the first section, verse 5, it's a reminder that Yahweh created life. Okay, so Yahweh is establishing the context for his authority and his position and his actions. He says, I am the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord who gives breath to every person on the planet. No one breathes apart from God allowing them to do so. 
Think of that. I am the Lord who gives spirit or life to those who walk on the planet. So Yahweh created the heavens and the earth, and then he is the one who gives life to every person on the planet, every one of them, whether you like them or not. And the implication is, if Yahweh stopped giving breath and life to people, we would all cease to exist. And thus Yahweh's authority in his position is inherent. He doesn't demand our attention because of what he does, but because he is. Without him, nothing is made that is made. So when this God speaks, when the Lord Yahweh says something, it is for certain that it will happen. And his words demand our attention, our trust, and our obedience because we get our very breath from him. Yahweh establishes his authority, and then he says, Yahweh calls his servant. He says, I am the Lord who calls you in righteousness. And from his position as creator God, the giver and sustainer of life, Yahweh says, I called you. So the word call means to summon or to invite. It can also mean to name. And years later, God named the servant that he is speaking to. Right now in, in Isaiah, he named him Jesus. And Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Same as Isaiah. See that? So God summoned Jesus to be the salvation of mankind and named him as such. And Yahweh chose him, and Yahweh continues. He says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I love this word picture. Isaiah uses it a lot in his, in his writings about his concept of God holding the hands of his servant. And the Lord, who, whose name is Yahweh is salvation, says, I will hold your hand and protect you. Yahweh is an all-powerful, transcendent God, the creator of the universe, and he gives life and breath to every individual on the planet, but he is also a God that is near. And like a father holding the hand of his son as they walk into danger, Yahweh never leaves the servant's side. Now, I remember walking into some pretty sketchy places when we were in Papua New Guinea, and when we had our little ones with us, I would get them close to me, and I would stop, and I would look them in the eye, and I would say, give me your hand. I'm, going to not, I'm not going to let you go. Right? I'm going to keep my eye on you and I'm going to protect you. And I remember my dad doing that to me when I was a kid, a long time ago, very long time ago. And as a child, it gave me an assurance, a sense of assurance and confidence. Right? As a child, the power and presence of your father holding your hand gives instant peace and assurance that you will get to your destination. And our Heavenly Father does the same for us. He takes us by the hand and he keeps us. It's a peaceful thing. It's an assurance thing. And he says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. And a covenant between two people in ancient times was a contract between two parties. A contract that required a death, actually. And that death was accomplished by cutting an animal in two pieces. And then the two parties that were making this covenant or contract walked between the pieces. And Isaiah says that Yahweh gives the servant as a covenant for the people. In other words, the servant is the covenant of Yahweh. The servant doesn't form the covenant. He doesn't walk between the pieces. That means that the servant is the covenant. He's cut in half, so to speak. I want you to listen to Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Jesus, when he took the cup, he said, Drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So the suffering servant of the Lord was given by Yahweh as the covenant, the promise, the contract in his blood so that 
forgiveness of sins could be given to mankind and we could all be in relationship with God again. And he also says, I will make you a light for the nations. So Yahweh gives the servant as a light to the nations. The servant is the light intended to, it says, open the eyes of the blind. The brightness of the servant would be powerful enough to break the spiritual blindness and rebellion of self-worship and open their eyes to the truth. He also says he will free the prisoner from the dungeon. So the light of the servant would illuminate the crevices and the corners of the sinfulness in our lives of those that are imprisoned by sin. And it would not only expose the shackles and the chains of that sin, but the light of the servant is power enough to break it all the iron and chains of sin, and bring the prisoner out to freedom. And he also says to release those imprisoned in darkness. And, and the light of the servant is power enough to overcome darkness. And another meaning associated with darkness is death. And so the servant's light will overcome the darkness of unbelief and sin and its consequences, death. Death in the process of being illuminated by the light of the servant will be destroyed forever. And to be able to do this, the servant, the gentle producer of justice, must be more than mere human. Which leads us to the last stanza of the poem, Yahweh creates, Yahweh calls, and finally Yahweh comprehends the future. He says, I am the Lord. Yahweh, I'm the self-existent one. That is my name. I do not share my glory with anyone else, he says. God does not share his glory with anyone else. He doesn't give his glory or share his position with any stupid, carved, fake, false, weak, dumb, deaf, idiotic idol, right? Especially an idol that's myself, right? Or yourself. And to demonstrate his transcendent power, Yahweh states that he alone will accomplish this because it gives him glory. And to prove it, he states, what he had predicted would come to pass has come to pass. God is saying that his word is utterly trustworthy and true because everything happened as he said it would happen. The promise at creation, the promise to Abraham of a nation, the promise at Sinai, the promise to King David, it all happened as God said it would happen. And so when he speaks something new, we can know for certain that it will happen as well. The servant will establish justice in the earth. He will surely open the eyes of the rebellious blind and bring the prisoners out of the dungeon of sin. And in the future, he will establish justice over the entire planet. And his law and order will last into eternity. We can stake our lives on it. So that's the poem. We know it's about Jesus. So what? It's a cool poem in Isaiah, written... 2,000, 3,000 years ago? What does it matter for us here in North Prairie today? With all that information that I'm giving you, what is it good for? So, let's turn to Acts chapter 26. We're going to go right back to where we were before. Acts chapter 26, Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa. And as I read this, I want you to notice Paul's calling from Jesus. He's recounting his calling from Jesus. And Paul echoes many of the things that the song of the servant has said. Listen to verse 16 and following. Now remember, Saul was on the road to Damascus. He was hit with this bright light that blinded him. And then it changes his life. In verse 15, he says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, 
I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you. Remember, the servant was chosen. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Look at all those correlations with that poem we just read. Here's the thing. God chose the servant Jesus to be a light to the nations, but that calling wasn't unique to him. It's the same for all who follow Jesus. It is the task of all who identify with Jesus through faith. We are called to be lights. It was true of Paul in Acts chapter 26. And then Jesus said, he said, you are the what? The light of the world. Let your light shine before men. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says the same thing. You are a chosen race. You're chosen in order to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what is true of the suffering servant of Jesus is also true of his followers, of us. We have the privilege of entering into the work of the gentle producer of justice by being a light. You have been chosen to do this task. And the incredible thing is, Jesus promises us, just like Yahweh promised him, I will take you by the hand and I will never leave you or forsake you when you do that. One last passage, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is getting ready after his resurrection to go to heaven. I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled. Jesus is making quite a claim right there. Everything written in the Old Testament was about him. And he's saying it's fulfilled in me. So this poem is fulfilled in Jesus, right? And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, okay? And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So these are my words that I've spoken to you, he says. Everything must be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled everything spoken by Isaiah. He was the chosen suffering servant. He was the covenant given by God to the people. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the gentle producer of justice. And he does this by suffering and rising from the grave, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins, and through his name to the ends of the earth. Jesus is in the process of bringing justice to the ends of the earth as people place their faith in him and he writes his law and order, his Torah, on their hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now he calls us to enter into God's plan and God's purposes for the planet. We are his witnesses. And so God the Father now says the same thing concerning us that he said about Jesus, right? Those of us who follow Jesus, who believe in him, he now says the same thing about us that he said to Jesus, right? Behold, my servants, from, from Isaiah 42, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on them. 
and they will bring forth justice to the nations. So just as Yahweh chose Jesus and delighted in Jesus and filled Jesus with his spirit and sent Jesus to produce justice, now Jesus has chosen us and delights in us and placed his spirit in us and is sending us to do the same thing. We are sent to introduce Jesus, the only one who produces justice, to the nations. To go forth in peace and confidence knowing that we have been called and that Yahweh takes us by the hand and he keeps us so that we can proclaim what the suffering servant did and accomplished. How Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, brings the prisoners out of the darkness of sin. And we do this by preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. And joining Yahweh in calling all people everywhere to believe in this wonderful Savior, the gentle producer of justice. For this is what God has chosen you for. What he's put his spirit inside of you for. You are his delight and he upholds you. He takes you by the hand and he keeps you because, to quote the Apostle Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these timeless poems that you inspired Isaiah to write. Poems that show us the character and nature of you and of your servant Jesus and then of us as we follow you. We don't naturally do this. We want to get justice by by conquering, by being uh, mightier than the rest. And yet you, your character, is the opposite of that. You produce justice and you bring about what's right through quietly loving and gently producing what is right in the hearts of our lives. May we submit to that. May we submit to your way, not to our way. So God, thank you for this this timely poem. I pray that it would speak to us through the course of this week. May we listen well to what your spirit has to say to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.